At this time, if you're able, would you please stand for the scripture reading out of respect for God's word. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans 8, 28 through 39. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word, it is true, it is given out of his love. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Elise. Well, we gave you the hard part this morning. I feel like that's probably going to be longer than my sermon is, that scripture reading we did there. So, uh, yeah, it's great to be worshiping with you all this morning. Um, one quick announcement on the partners meeting. I was just was informed that that's actually Super Bowl Sunday on February 12th. I figured since the Packers aren't in it, is anyone going to watch the Super Bowl anyway, right? That's probably, we're done with the NFL for a while, I think. So, uh, yeah, anyway, we're, as we get started here this morning, we actually have one really exciting thing that we're going to do today, which is we're going to start a new book of the Bible. So one of the things that we do every week here at Missio Days, we study through whole books of the Bible, a verse at a time, and, and we've been going for about nine and a half years now, and so we're actually, this is the 23rd book of the Bible that we have started as a church, which is exciting. It means we're just a little over a third of the way through, so in about 30 years, we should get through the whole Bible kind of thing, so stay tuned, uh, keep coming, taking notes, all those things. Uh, but this uh, book of First Peter is one I've been excited for for the last several years uh, because I feel like it is probably one of the easiest and most directly applicable books of the Bible to the uh, experience that we have as modern-day Americans here in the 21st century. The context of what Peter is writing to uh, in the first century and to the Roman Empire is actually a very similar context to what we're dealing with. And so uh, the Roman culture was completely uh, opposed to the ideas of Christianity, uh, and Christianity as a new religion that was growing uh, had an increasing, being ramped up, increasing amount of persecution that they were facing as it became more and more clear to society what it meant to follow Jesus. And as, and as it became more and more clear that following Jesus and being a healthy, plugged-in member of society are actually incompatible. And in this day and age, we find ourselves in our country, there's a lot of things shifting in our, in our nation. We're seeing a lot of anxiety rising from people as we're seeing the cultural change that's taking place. And as Christians, there's a lot of us that are just really confused about how do we relate to the culture that we're experiencing. And what about following Jesus? What if that doesn't make my life simple and comfortable what if it doesn't make me popular or healthy, wealthy, all of those kinds of things that we want to believe? And so we're calling this series uh, Thriving in Exile. This, this, this idea of living in exile says that this is not our home we're living in right now. 
And I think the more that a society appears Christian on the outside, the easier it is to trick ourselves into thinking that we have found a home. But what First Peter is going to show us, what I think all of Scripture shows us, that it is as the people of God on this earth, we are always going to be living in exile. We're always going to be living apart from our home. But if we cling to Jesus, if we follow him with the teachings that he has shown us and live out a vibrant, robust faith of what it means to be a follower of Christ, we can actually find that we can thrive in this place of exile that we're facing. We don't have to worry about society and all of the changes that are taking place. So, so there's a really helpful book I've read in preparing for this series called Evangelism as Exiles by Elliot Clark. And here's a, here's a quote from this book that's a little bit long, but I think it does a great job of setting the table for why the stakes feel high right now in our society and why First Peter is important. So listen to Elliot Clark here. It says, Yes, Christians in America are increasingly isolated and denigrated. Yes, our cultural and social capital is vanishing before our eyes. Yes, in the span of one short week, the Supreme Court could easily rewrite, rewrite our futures and remove many freedoms. Yes, public school curricula are being weaponized to indoctrinate children in secular dogma and a new sexual ethic. It doesn't even take much imagination to envision how well-intentioned laws against discrimination, hate speech, or terrorism could one day be used to justify the imprisonment of Christians. And it doesn't end there. On a personal level, we have, pos- we have plenty of more room for fear. By standing up for Christ, we run the risk of forfeiting promotions or positions, of missing out on a tenure or a contract. We might even lose families, but this shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said he didn't come to bring peace but a sword. We have much to lose, yet none of that justifies Christians being terrified. We must not, according to Peter, tremble in fear at the thought of surrendering a job or a business at a failed school board initiative or a particular Supreme Court decision. Because if we do, we're preaching the completely wrong gospel to the world. We're telling them our greatest fear is the loss of money and power and influence, the loss of our beloved comfort. But as long as that is the case, we show that our fear and our gospel is no different from theirs. I think, I think it's a really poignant quote because for, for many uh, American Christians who fall more on the conservative spectrum of things, this is planning out the worst case scenario. This feels like the absolute worst case thing that could happen. And for other Christians that are more on the, the left end of the political spectrum, you could write a whole other paragraph listing some of your fears, some of the worst case scenario that you have. And what he's trying to point our attention to is that Peter was preparing us for this. Jesus, through Peter, was preparing us for the context that we're facing right now. And if we cling to the gospel, we have nothing thing to fear. Paul, uh, Peter's going to say over and over again in this book that as followers of Christ, there is no reason to fear because our God is sovereign. So I'm going to say a word of prayer, and then we're going to start uh, studying in the book of First Peter this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, the fact that we get to open our Bibles and know that this is your word, that it is true, and it has been given to us out of your love that you have for us. So I pray that over these next 12 or 13 weeks, that as we study this book of First Peter, that, that you would become even more and more real to us. In the midst of our, our day and age that feels like everything is changing, that society is crumbling beneath our feet, I pray that we would look to you like that song says, that you would be the firm foundation upon which we stand. And if we stand on the truth of your word, if we stand on the beauty of your gospel, then we have truly nothing to fear. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Amen. All right, so this idea of exile and as Christians living in exile, it's kind of a strange concept if you think about it because as Christians, we believe that when Jesus was on the cross and when he rose again three days later, that he defeated sin and death. Jesus won the ultimate victory. But when you talk about being in exile, an exile is someone who lost, right? Like if you won the war, you don't go into exile. You you stay in your home and you rule and you lead and those kinds of things. So it, it is a bizarre concept for us as Christians to be saying, even though Jesus won the victory, on the cross, that here we are 2,000 years later still living in exile. And so what I want us to do this morning is just embrace the strangeness of that idea. It says like there, there feels like there's a tension here, the idea of Jesus has already won and we're living in exile. And the concepts we're going to talk about this morning actually get even more confusing. It feels like it's even harder for us to get a, a grasp on the ideas that we're going to talk about. It feels like we don't have a mental framework for the concepts that we're going to talk about this morning, especially as it relates to suffering and what it means to be a follower of Christ who suffers. I, I met a, a young friend th- this week at our J-Term group. Uh, his name's Everest. He's four years old, and he's awesome. And when I met Everest, he says, my name is Everest like the mountain. Okay, and I think that that little mental association, he's going to be a great networker or business administrator later on in life. He's like, here's my name. It's not common, so I'm going to give you a mental framework to understand what I'm talking about. Okay, it's like when I go to Starbucks and I say, my name is Colbert, they always say, uh, come again, or how do you spell that? No one has any framework for my idea my name. And because of that, they don't have a mental hook to put my name on when they write my name on the Starbucks card. That's why it's always spelled different every time I go. But what's happening this morning is with, with First Peter is he's going to talk about the theme of suffering, about the theme of living in exile a ton. And that's one of those things where we have to, when we hear this in the Bible, the idea that as a Christian, you could experience suffering. We have that same experience that I get at Starbucks all the time. The come again, this doesn't seem to fit. This doesn't seem to make sense with the context of what I think God should be doing in my life, what I think he should be bringing in my life is comfort, not pain and those kinds of things. And so, so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to actually not, instead of jumping into the first few verses of First Peter like we normally do, we're going to take a quick run through the whole book and we're going to highlight all the themes that come out of when it talks about the Bible, uh, about Christians and suffering and experiencing pain and hardship. And what I'm hoping that this does is, is pulls us back enough to see the overarching uh, framework of the book so that when we approach these difficult to grasp concepts that you will suffer as a Christian, What I want this morning to do is provide a framework that we can interpret correctly the rest of the book of 1 Peter. It's it's like in that movie, A Christmas Story, right? When when Ralphie finally gets his decoder ring, right? It's like a decoder ring is what we're going to do this morning. If you don't line up these concepts of it's okay to suffer as a Christian, then none none of the rest of the book is going to make sense. So so I'm going to read a few verses for us out of 1 Peter. It'd be great to have the Bible open in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, uh, 1 Peter is found in the table Bibles on page 1. 1014 as we get going here. And so I'm going to just, like I said, read several of these verses that deal with what it means to suffer as a Christian. And again, this, this framework feels uncomfortable. Okay, sit in the discomfort of these verses that we're going to read now. Don't press on too quickly and say, oh, I'm sure there's a way to tie this together neatly and nicely before we leave here in 25 minutes or something. But embrace the discomfort of what these verses are telling us. Let's look at verse, chapter 1, verse 6 first. What Peter tells us is, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Yeah, like th- think about the strangeness of that verse. You rejoice when you are grieved by suffering and trials. We should rejoice when we experience suffering. What is he talking about? Chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, 
they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice he doesn't say if society changes and they speak against you as evildoers, but when you follow Jesus, you should expect people not to be neutral towards you and what you're saying, but to be negative towards you. To, to say that what you are doing as a Christian is actually evil, that you're called a bigot or closed-minded, something like that. Chapter 2, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It's a gracious thing to endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. Gracious is the loving kindness of God. We see God's kindness when we suffer unjustly. What in the world is Peter talking about? Verse 20 of chapter 2. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He's saying it, it's, it's a good thing in God's sight when we experience pain. What in the world is Peter talking about? Chapter 3, verse 14, if you flip the page there. Peter says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Like, we are blessed when we suffer for righteousness' sake. And so next time someone signs their email, blessings, or when you say goodbye to someone, you say blessings to you, it's like they're saying suffering to you. That's what Peter is saying here. That's a great way to end your email. 317, chapter 3, verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So now, now Peter is opening up the possibility that suffering might actually be a part of God's sovereign will in our lives. That's a strange, strange concept. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. When we experience suffering and trials, don't be shocked or surprised or feel like it's abnormal. That's not strange. It's actually a normal part of the Christian life to experience suffering. And he goes on in verse 13. It says, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Again, this command to rejoice in the midst of suffering like we saw in chapter 1. Uh, chapter 4, verse 16, a few verses down. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Like when you suffer, it's a chance or it's a command to worship God in the midst of your suffering, to, to glorify God in the midst of that suffering. Chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so now he just comes right out and says it. When we suffer, that is according to God's sovereign plan. That is a part of God's will. What in the world kind of God would ordain that? Chapter 5, verse 9 says, Resist him, resist the devil. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Okay, so he's saying that the, the normal experience across the entire globe for people who follow Jesus is to experience suffering. Okay, okay, those verses, again, that, that we've, we've covered every chapter in the book of 1 Peter, so it's this theme, this thread that runs through the entire book of 1 Peter, that if we don't understand what in the world Peter is talking about when he says that we will suffer as a Christian, there's no way we'll understand anything that Peter's going to talk about for these next 12 weeks as we go through these verses. And, and the thing that I think is interesting here also is a lot of times you read the New Testament talks about suffering, and we assume, like, we all know the history of Peter, right? He's the guy who was crucified upside down, who was martyred for his faith for following Jesus. But this was written 10 or 15 years before Peter was martyred. At, at this point, there is no systematic, organized persecution in the Roman Empire against Christians. What he's talking about here in these verses about suffering is being a social outcast, 
being told that the things that you believe are backwards, being told that if you continue to go to that church, you're not welcome to be a part of our family, that, that if you actually say what you believe in your workplace, you could be fired for that. Those kinds of things are the sufferings that Peter is talking about here, and those things seem strangely familiar to our day and age with what we're talking about. So, so as, as we get going through the book of First Peter, the suffering that he's talking about, don't couch it in something far away like it's for those people who are being arrested for their faith or beaten up for their faith or killed for their faith. What Peter is talking about is actually the kinds of sufferings that you and I can experience every single day here as an American citizen are very familiar to what Peter would have experienced. So, so as we get going, one of the things I want to do this morning is spend just a few minutes talking about this question of how could a good God allow suffering? Right, because that's the thing that stirs up in our heart. When you read all those verses and when we say, wait a second, it's God's will that I suffer? I should be worshiping God in the midst of my pain and suffering? That doesn't seem to fit with our idea of what we want God to be. And so this is historically called the problem of evil. And, and a lot of times it's held out as the number one reason of why people don't believe that God exists or that Jesus is God is because there's this idea of how could a good God who is all-powerful allow evil to exist? Either he must not be all-powerful and not able to stop it, or he must not be all good and not truly desire to stop the pain that we're suffering. So one of the, I think I said, go real quickly. There is massive, massive volumes and tons of books that you could read about this topic. So I'm not going to do it justice today at all. But I do think as followers of Christ in the 21st century, we have to have some kind of framework that says, yes, God is good and pain exists in the world. And those two ideas are not incompatible. So, so here's a quick stab at this whole problem of evil thing. I think the first thing we need to realize is as Christians, we don't need to ignore the question. A lot of times we fear this objection and we think, oh man, what if I'm sharing my faith with my neighbor or my classmate or my coworker and they ask, well, how could a good God allow evil to exist? If God's good, why is there malnutrition and famine in the world or something like that? We don't have to be afraid of this question. Okay, everyone, no matter what your worldview is, no matter what your faith is, everyone has to give an answer for why evil exists. And, and, and the, the atheistic worldview or a worldview that says God doesn't exist has to give an answer for why suffering is meaningless. But what we're trying to defend is saying that there's actually, there could be a point to your pain. There could be something deeper going on in your pain. If you don't believe in God, if you're here and you don't believe that God exists, you have to answer the question of how do you go through your life with suffering being a meaningless part of your meaningless existence? And if, and if suffering is meaningless, then beauty is meaningless, love is meaningless, all the good things that we see in life also doesn't have meaning. So we all have to answer this question of how does evil exist? The second thing we want to see is that, that God is not the source of evil. The Bible is very clear. God is entirely good. There, there is nothing but goodness that flows from him. So any evil that exists in the world is not the result of God's action. It's the result of his good creation stepping into sin and rebelling and falling and sinning instead of following his will. The third thing we see is that uh, God, Jesus, and God in Jesus is the only deity in any worldview or any religion that says even though he was above the fray, even though he could not experience pain as the creator of the universe, he voluntarily and willingly entered into human form, was born 2,000 years ago into a difficult time to live, and lived and suffered as a man. Christianity is the only religion that believes God voluntarily, out of love, stepped into pain himself. The other thing we see that the Bible talks about is that God will one day bring good out of evil. Okay, that it's not, it's not that, that evil is good, but that from the evil that takes place, God redeems that and purifies that and makes it actually a part of our good story. 
Okay, and the idea here is that it's better to be redeemed than to be innocent. Okay, so when you experience pain and are purified through that process, you're actually in a better spot than Adam was before he ever sinned when he was just in a completely innocent state. The last thing I want to highlight is this idea that evil does not have the final say. Okay, according to the Christian worldview, at one day Jesus will return. He will defeat sin and death once and for all, and there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more crying. We will live for eternity in the presence of Jesus. And so we need to keep that sample size in mind when we're talking about evil. If you think of the moments of your life as a glass of water, okay, one or two drops of ink in that glass of water make a big difference, right? It it colors the whole glass a different color because of the pain that we experience. But if you think about all of eternity as the drops of water in the entire ocean, one or two drops of ink in that ocean won't make as big of a difference as it was in the small sample size of our life. That doesn't mean that evil isn't painful. It doesn't mean that that God doesn't care. It doesn't mean that we are made for eternity. And in eternity, the insufficient sample size of our lives won't seem as significant. So with that, we see five points. Evil is real, but God didn't create it. Jesus came to experience it. God will one day redeem it. And Jesus is returning to abolish it. Okay, and so that, 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 that list there is, is what most philosophers consider the philosophical answer to the problem of evil. Okay, there, there's, a, there's a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga who put this together, and, and most philosophers, even atheistic philosophers, agree that this answers the philosophical objection to the problem of evil. Okay, God is off the hook now with these five points. But the thing that we're wrestling with this morning, the thing that we always deal with, is the philosophical answer to the problem of evil doesn't relieve the tension we feel in our hearts, does it? Okay, that doesn't explain why miscarriages happen. It doesn't explain why children die. It doesn't explain why famines exist. It doesn't explain why our friends abandon us or leave us. It doesn't explain why marriages end, why spouses abandon their mates and their children. It doesn't explain why loneliness exists. It doesn't explain why depression or anxiety exists. It doesn't explain why any of these things that we experience exist in our life. And so the thing we want to do this morning is recognize that there is the philosophical answer to the problem of evil. But when we're talking about pain, pain is always personal. Okay, the list on that screen does not answer the personal pain that we feel. Pain is always personal. It is not philosophical. I think the, I think the best example I can think of of this is, is C.S. Lewis. So we're at like week six in a row of mentioning C.S. Lewis in a sermon now. It's a pretty good streak we got going. Uh, in the 1940s, he wrote a philosophical book called The Problem of Pain. And in that book, he, as the philosopher, as the intellect, he gives the answer to how a good God could allow evil to exist. It's a, it's a brilliant book on his ideas and his thinking about evil and how God could exist. And then 20-some years later, his wife dies slowly and painfully of cancer in front of him. And he writes a journal called A Grief Observed. And, and, and the personal experience of his wife dying and the pain that he experienced there is a completely different answer than the philosophical answer of the problem of pain. And, and it's in that grief observed that I think we find a lot more closeness to who Jesus is and to what Peter is talking about as we go through this book. So here's a quote from that journal that he wrote after his wife died. Lewis says, Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God, The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there is no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. 
Okay, in his grief, he's worried not that he would think God doesn't exist. He's worried that he would think God is an evil tyrant who inflicts pain because he doesn't care. Okay, that, that's what's at stake when we talk about the problem of pain, why it's such a personal thing for us to go through. So I don't want to remove the tension and think because we gave a few bullet points on a screen that all of a sudden the personal pain we're experiencing dissipates. But what I do want to say is that as we press into that, we find the strength of our faith and we find the strength of who our faith is in the more that we wrestle with this question of how can suffering and evil exist. So here's another quote from A Grief Observed. Lewis says, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death. It is easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you are merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you truly trusted it? Okay, a lot of us as Christians have lived our lives with this idea of, yeah, this rope is strong. I, I can use this rope to, to tie things together. My faith is strong. But we don't really know how strong our faith is until we're asked to hang by that rope over a cliff and wonder whether or not we believe our faith in God is strong enough to hold us. So, so what I want to do this now for the next few minutes as we, as we continue here is to go through some of these concepts of, of what does it mean that Jesus endured suffering on our behalf? What, what does it mean that you can go to him in your pain? What does it mean that God will one day take the pain that you have experienced and redeem that and, and renew that and somehow transform that into a part of his good plan for you? And I think that's the beauty of 1 Peter is we see the answer to this in 1 Peter. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 4. We read verses 12 and 13, but let's read them again, looking at the role of Jesus in these verses. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far. The reason you rejoice is because you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When God tells us to rejoice in suffering, he's telling us to do something that he himself has already done on our behalf. That idea that God himself took on flesh and entered into our pain and suffering is the hinge for the entire thing of what it means to follow Jesus in the midst of your pain. We're not asked to follow a general who gives us orders from the safe spot way away from the battle. We're called to follow a commander who is leading the charge into the face of suffering and death himself. It's a way different thing to follow a Jesus who made himself vulnerable so that he could experience pain. Right? Think about that. The vulnerability of taking on flesh as an infant and living life in the first century with all the discomforts and then, and then being executed in a brutally painful and horrific way so that he could tell us in the midst of our suffering, you can rejoice because I've already been there. I've already defeated sin and death. This is what he, uh, we learn in Hebrews chapter 2. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or to make atonement for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The reason we can go to Jesus in our pain, in our suffering, in our tears, and in our anguish is because he has already experienced all of those exact things himself. You're not crying on the shoulder of someone who has no idea what you're going through. You're going to the feet of someone whose feet were nailed to a cross because of how much he loved you. So the reason we can endure in the midst of suffering is because Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he didn't already do himself. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 21, It says this. 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And I love this idea of follow in his steps. If you think about like a, a blizzard like we had on, on Friday and into Saturday, when the snow is going, like if you step on in, in a spot, uh, it's only a few minutes before that footprint is covered because the snow continues to blow and fills right in it. But if you're following someone through that blizzard, you can put your feet where their feet have stepped if you keep close enough to them. I think that's the image of what Peter is going with here. Not that he had a blizzard like Colorado or Falcon in mind when he was writing in the first century Mediterranean world. That'd be nice, right? Um, But what he is saying is that as you follow Jesus, you experience a closeness and a nearness to him. You, You can't follow him at a distance from far off. Rather, you follow him as you sit near him with what he is experiencing and the idea of suffering. There's a, there's a, uh, I have a friend in Acts 29 whose wife wrote a book, and in that book she says this, the absence of suffering in my life is not my good. The nearness of God is my great, great good. Okay, and, and she wrote this a few weeks before she passed away after a long battle with breast cancer. So, so as she's saying this, she's experiencing excruciating pain, and she is holding over that cliff on that rope of her faith And she is seeing the reason I know that my good is not in comfort is because I have experienced Jesus in the midst of my pain. That's the reason we rejoice in pain. If you look at back at chapter one, verse six, we read that already. In this you rejoice enough for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. But look what happens next, verse seven. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, as it turns out, the reason we suffer and rejoice is because we see through Scripture that God does something in our suffering that he cannot do any other way. Okay, think about that for a second. There is something God does in the midst of our pain that he cannot do to us any other way. That's, that's uh, what we see in Hebrews chapter 10. Sorry, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. So this is Jesus. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Think about that. Jesus, as the perfect, sinless, righteous son of God, had to be made perfect through suffering. Doesn't this verse sound like it's a heresy the first time you read it? Like it's, it's implying that, that somehow Jesus wasn't complete until he had endured suffering on our, on our behalf in the first place. And I think that's the important concept that we see. It's not saying that he's perfect as in he had a flaw. He's saying that he wasn't perfect as in he wasn't complete. There is something that Jesus had to do to endure suffering on our behalf that made him a more perfect savior than if he had never suffered in our place. Okay. And that shows us the pervasiveness of sin, right? That, that's the effects of the fall, the fact that, that sin and evil are so detestable to God that he had to kick Adam and Eve out of the garden. In order for them to be invited back into the presence of God, they first needed a Savior who was made complete through his own suffering. And so if Jesus becomes more complete and more perfect as a Savior, not as a God because he's already perfect and complete, but as our Savior, he becomes more complete through suffering, then that means that when you and I suffer, we are becoming more complete and more perfect than if we hadn't suffered in the first place. This is exactly what James tells us in James chapter 1. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. And there's that word again, joy. And this is probably a good spot to clarify. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. Okay, happiness is my life is going well and I can't stop smiling. 
Joy is, I am so aware of the glory and the power of God that I can't help but be confident about what's coming in my future. Okay, joy is a co- an awareness of God's glory that leads to confidence and strength in your living. So he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, like it, there's this, I- this idea that I've been wrestling with for a while that says we only grow through pain. I used to think we most often grow through pain. I would like to think we most often grow through comfort and we most often grow when things are going really well. But I think if you evaluate your life, if you look back on the ways that you have grown in your life, I think it's only on the other side of pain that we can actually look back and say we have grown and we have matured. We only grow through pain. There's there's a quote that Aaron used a few weeks ago and he preached on Psalm 13 from Joni Erickson Tata. And she says, God permits things he hates in order to accomplish things he loves. I think that's a, that's a profound way of looking at it. God permits things he hates to accomplish things he loves. God, God loves you. Like, I believe, believe that, right? Like in the midst of whatever pain you're experiencing this morning, God loves you. And because he loves you, he wants you to be complete and perfect. And he knows that he has to use suffering and difficulty in order to make us more like his son who used suffering and difficulty to bring us to his father and to pay for our sin. And so that's why God allows the things he hates, is to accomplish the things he loves. The reason we only grow through pain is because on the other side of that pain, we see a clearer picture of Jesus, and we have a clearer understanding of how he is with us. Pain is not the good thing, right? It's what the pain produces in our life that is, is what is good. Romans 5 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And the reason we rejoice is because we know that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, And hope does not put us to shame. Hope doesn't disappoint us. Hope doesn't let us down because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I think it's no coincidence that he ends this chain of events talking about pain and suffering, reminding us that we get through those things. And the reason we have confidence is because God's love has been poured into our hearts. We don't go through suffering shaking our fist at God saying, how are you allowing this to happen? We go through suffering saying, in the presence of my discomfort is the invitation to experience more of the comfort of Jesus. And that's actually this amazing passage we have to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. I love that title for Jesus. The God of all comfort. Any comfort or joy that you experience in your life comes from him as his identity. It says that God comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. And so, so he, he's saying that, that as Christ comforts us in the midst of our affliction, which, which is this invitation, when you are afflicted, when you suffer, there is an invitation to experience a nearness of Jesus that you could not experience when life is going your way. And because of that, that should overflow from our hearts onto other people that also need to experience the comfort of Jesus. Now listen to how Paul ends this. This blows my mind. Verse 7. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Okay? And, and think about it. Paul doesn't say, here's my hope for you. 
I hope that you live long and prosper. Right? I hope that your life goes well and that it is easy for you and that everything goes your way. What he's saying is because he loves the Corinthians, his sure and steadfast and confident hope is that they will suffer. But as they suffer, that they will experience the comfort of Jesus unlike they can any other time. Right? There's, there's a quote that's often attributed to, to Charles Spurgeon that says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. And I think that's what we're saying suffering is supposed to do. Is it, you kiss the wave. You, you bless the wave that throws you against the rock of ages that is Jesus. And I had a few um, w- weeks ago, my mentor asked me to evaluate how is it that God has grown me this last year? How have I matured this last year? And I know two things for, for a fact. Uh, in the last 13 months, I have grown more in my faith and what it means to follow Jesus than I have ever at any point in my entire life. And I also know that in the last 13 months, I've experienced more pain and discomfort and anguish than I have in any other 13-month period of my entire life. And, and it's going through that and seeing the nearness of Jesus now that says, that is a wonderful exchange. If, if on the other side of our pain is an awareness of Jesus' presence, then why would we ever turn our backs on our pain? If the blessing of enduring suffering is that we get to experience a more real relationship with Christ, then I'm not going to run from my pain any longer. I'm going to lean into it because I know that in that is God's goodness for me. A friend recommended Isaiah 38 to me this week, and this is such a wonderful verse. It says, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. Another way of saying, we only grow through pain. It was for my goodness that God allowed this suffering to take place in my life. And so as we go through 1 Peter, we're going to see constant reminders. Every week, this theme is going to come up, right? It's going to be this reminder that, that God uses pain for our good because it was only through his pain that we've been brought close to Jesus in the first place. So as, as we encounter these concepts, don't run from the discomfort of this idea that God can use pain to grow us. But at the same time, don't get complacent in that either. Don't feel like what this is is we're just signed up for more and more pain and suffering. We just got to do, our, do our, our due diligence. You know, like the, the old monks that would whip themselves because they think the more that pain they inflicted on themselves, the more sin was leaving their body. Don't fall into any of that despair or unbiblical thing. Instead, lean on the truth of the gospel. Lean on the truth of why did Jesus experience pain in the first place? And we see this all over First Peter. One final place I want to point it to is First Peter 3, verse 18. 1 Peter 3.18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Okay, the righteous, perfect, spotless son of God also suffered so that he could bring sinners like you and me back to God in the first place. The point of that suffering of Jesus was the redemption. And because of that, suffering does not have the final say. As after, after writing this whole letter about suffering, this whole letter about pain, saying endure as exiles, you can thrive in exile because Jesus will use your suffering, Peter wraps up his letter by saying in chapter 5, verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Right? The, even though God uses our pain to grow us, our pain will not have the final say. 
that the after we have suffered a little while, God will one day bring our pain to an end. And on the other side of that is the fullness of joy in the presence of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have, um, we have concepts in the Bible that are not comfortable to us. Uh, and that's because left to ourselves, we would never choose to follow you. God, we are so broken and sinful that our hearts are twisted, our minds are corrupted, and left to ourselves, we would want everything except what's good for us. So I thank you for your love that shows us what's good for us, that gives us the ability to, to hear from you through your word, to be reminded that our comfort is not our highest goal, but rather the nearness of you is the best thing that can happen to us. So I pray that as we go to our discussion tables now, that you'd be in our midst, that as, as difficult things get discussed or uncovered or just even mentioned or referenced, that, that we would be able to experience the comfort that comes from you, the God of all comfort, and that from that we would comfort one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I mean, well, I went a little bit longer than I meant to this morning, but it's such an important topic. We don't ever want to rush past concepts like this or ideas like this. So, so we only have a few minutes for our discussion table. So we have all the questions on the screen. I encourage you to maybe uh, take a picture of that or somehow uh, maybe take your bulletin. I think the questions are on there home with you. And keep this conversation going. Just because you won't be able to finish it at your table, it is worth processing with a, a roommate or a, a spouse or a, a family member. But So the first question is, when in your life did you grow the most as a follower of Christ? and how did God grow you? you know, when have you grown in your faith the most and how did God do uh, that? And if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, like we're so glad you're here. Uh, maybe instead answer this question with, uh, when in your life have you felt most interested in this idea of whether or not God is real? Uh, second question is, have you ever felt that the existence of evil is a barrier to trusting Jesus? And how do the verses we read today about Jesus suffering help deal with that barrier? And then lastly, what is hard in your life right now? What would it look like or feel like to experience Jesus' presence in that? And, and that's why that idea that your tables are a safe place is so important. Uh, if you are dealing with something incredibly hard in your life, you've come to the right place. You've come to a place where you can experience love and grace because we have all experienced the love and grace of Jesus. So we'll do that for, we'll do that for 20 seconds, and then we're going to wrap up with some community. No, we'll, we'll stretch it out a little bit. So by, by five or six minutes, and then we'll, we'll go to time of worship. Yeah, thanks everyone. I, I really hate having to come up and cut your discussion short like this. I think uh, if your table is anything like ours, you're just starting to deal with some things or say some things that are really important. And I would, I would encourage you, uh, what, what is you're about to say needs to be said. So make sure you connect with someone in your DC or you connect with a friend or if you don't have a DC or anyone to connect with, uh, come connect with us after church. We'd love to get you with some people who can help uh, process the difficulties that are in our lives. Um, so what we do every week after we, we hear the word preached, we want to respond in worship. So we, we worship God by the way we comfort one another at our tables. We worship God through prayer. I'll be in the back corner if you'd like prayer for anything. I'd love to pray with you. If someone at your table, I'm sure, would love to pray with you as well. We worship God when we give our tithes and our offerings as a, a response to what he has given to us. Uh, we also worship God through communion. And so communion is this weekly reminder that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And so when we talk about pain and suffering, I, I love that every week we get to come to the table, the communion table, and be reminded that we're not talking about anything that Jesus didn't already do in our behalf for us already. And so we have three tables around here. There's two, and then there's one in the back. Uh, and we serve open communion, which means if you love Jesus, we would love for you to come take communion with us. The, in the bread is the reminder that his body was broken for us, and in the juice is the reminder that his blood was shed for us. And when we come to him in faith, those two 
elements are, are still just juice and crackers, but what is behind them is the nourishment for our souls through remembering who Jesus is and what he has done. And so what we're going to do for the next 13 weeks is every week when we celebrate communion, we're going to come back to 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through, or 22 through 25. And hear how Peter describes what happened on the cross. He says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. By his wounds, by his pain, by his suffering, we have been made right with God. Our souls have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. We come to the table because we have a good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep so that we can come to the Father knowing that our sins are forgiven. That in that, that juice is a reminder that your sins have been washed away. In that, that piece of bread that's been broken is a reminder that Jesus experienced the same brokenness that we all endure on this earth. And so as you come to the table, may our faith be nourished by these elements. If you're able, would you please stand with me and I will say a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you loved us enough to come to earth, to suffer in our place, to die in our place, to rise again three days later, defeating sin and death. So as we live in this meantime, as we await your return when the final vanquishing of evil, as we experience pain and suffering this coming week, Lord, may we remember that you have already paved the way for us that you have suffered, that you endured your suffering to the end so that we can have hope in the end. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's worship.